millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There's already a bit of a challenge about what data gets shared globally when it comes to, to liberal democracies. We want to share the results of our data. We want an open scientific collaboration globally. Uh, but we face a challenge that China, which is actually probably leading the research on this globally now, is not sharing its data in return. You're listening to the National Security Podcast, the show that brings you expert analysis, insights and opinion on the national security challenges facing Australia and the Indo-Pacific. Produced by the ANU National Security College. Welcome to the National Security Podcast. I'm David Andrews. Today's podcast is being recorded on the lands of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people, and I pay my respects to their elders past and present. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Dirk van der Klee for a discussion on the quad and biotechnology. Dirk is a lecturer at the ANU National Security College, who specializes on technology competition between the United States and China with a particular interest in biological technologies. He was the lead author, along with Dan Pavlich, of a research paper recently released by the NSC entitled A Strategy for Quad Biotechnology Cooperation. This paper is the first major research publication of the 2023 iteration of the Quad Technology Network, an NSC initiative funded by the Department of Home Affairs. The QTN aims to establish and deepen academic and official networks linking the Quad nations, Australia, India, Japan and the United States, in relation to the most pressing technology issues affecting the future security and prosperity of the Indo-Pacific. Dirk, welcome back to the National Security Podcast. Thanks for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. Well, perhaps the best place to start is for you to tell us a little bit about the research paper that you and Dan have authored and some of the process behind it, and then we can dive into some more detailed specifics. Yep, that's an absolute delight. I'd be happy to do that. Uh, so, we, well, I had been thinking about biotechnology, uh, not just with the Quad, but between the US and China for quite some time. It's probably the technology in my mind that is everyone talks about and says, you know, we need, should do something on biotechnology. They understand that genes are important. Um, having seen what happened in COVID, there's a sense of how important it is. But I think it's probably the technology that is least well understood just because the the scientific components of it are so complicated. Uh, so we, we as part of this this project, which you've been involved with, um, decided that we do a sort of scan on what the opportunities are for the quad itself. And how we went about this research is Dan, my co-author, who's a genetics student at ANU and also at the NSC here. We went to Japan uh, on fieldwork. We went to um India on field work as well, and we had significant involvement with US people trying to talk through and work out where their biotech sector is and, you know, what the opportunities are for uh, the quad to, to progress that. And I think one of the things that sort of came out to me is that we're on the cusp of what we call a biotechnological revolution, 
where a lot of the things that have been done through chemical processes up until very recently or are still doing so, we're going to see a very, very big shift very quickly. And so this will be one of the most, um, I would say, important or consequential technologies of the next 10 to 20 years. I think obviously without betraying any confidences, my understanding um, from editing this paper for you is that you've had access to lots of really uh, sort of high-profile, important people in the biotechnology sector across these quad countries. And I think uh, for people who who read the paper, and it will be published, um, if not already, uh, very soon on the NSC uh, website, they'll be able to see firsthand the product of that. But uh, I think it, it gives a really uh, unique set of insights to this, this set of issues. But before we get too much further along as well, I thought it might be useful to just elaborate a little bit more on... Um, getting a better sense of what you mean when we say biotechnology. So I think for most people, it's probably not a concept they're intimately familiar with. Uh, so perhaps at the first instance here, could you explain a little bit more about what biotechnology is and also why it matters? Yeah, that, that'd be my uh, pleasure. And I think this is maybe one of the biggest contributions of this paper uh, is that biotechnology is not that well understood. Uh if you go and sort of Google different definitions, what you tend to get is a very generic thing which says, you know, anything that has biological outputs, that literally means nothing. And that was one of the problems with the starting point for us is that if you go to the traditional definitions of biotechnology, you, you tend to just get a sense of anything that's a biological output. That can mean something like beer from where you have yeast um, being used to create beer or even bread. And that's, I don't think, really what we're talking about here. We're talking about modern biotechnology. So the, the first thing is, we're looking at some sort of biological product that has been at the output of genetic engineering. And so we're at a case now where the ability to easily edit the DNA of almost any living organism, uh, it's, it's, it's not simple, but it is relatively quick. And it's something that a lot of people can now uh, do. And, and just to give some context of what that looks like, uh, it can be you know, the editing of a single cell organism such as yeast uh, so that it produces oil, for example, and then you take that oil and then you'll have you'll have um, what's called a biofuel and you can use that in aviation or you can use that in your in your car as well. And that's already happening pretty commonly. So it's the easy editing of of um, of a living organism, a genetic engineering of a living organism to produce an output. Uh, the second thing that we tend to look for, is something that's done at scale. So it's not just one or two things, but you know that it is done as part of engineering a system. Uh, and that tends to be a case of, once again, if you edit that particular um, organism, such as yeast for oil, then you want to grow it in a certain size. You need to grow it at a certain scale. So we talk about about fermenting and growing that at a, at a large size so that you can produce the oil at a scale that makes you competitive with the petrochemical industry as well, just to take that example. And the third thing that we're looking at now is the use of data and AI. Um, and that's really rapidly changed how the industry works because you can do the genetic engineering much more quickly. You can also do the sequencing and draw inferences from the, from the uh, data much more quickly than you can before. So we're, we're talking about modern biotechnology. And the centerpiece of that is, of course, the fact that we can genetically engineer things very quickly. We're not talking about the tr traditional uses of of biotech where you might, you know, just use a pre-existing um, a pre-existing organism in nature and then just use them for a certain purpose. They have to be genetically engineered. And that's really been the change between traditional biotechnology and modern biotechnology that we see now. 
Well, as much as I'm sure we'd all appreciate a quad partnership on beer and bread, <laughs> as you say, maybe not the uh, the first and foremost security issue of uh, of concern, but it does sound to me like there's there's lots of natural parallels between what you're discussing here is sort of this modern biotechnology, much as in lots of other technologies industries. You know, we're seeing uh, continuous advances in computing or in physics or other forms of engineering. And this is, it sounds like just another aspect of that, but focused on biotechnologies rather than a different form. I think that's that's, um, a a pretty good understanding. There has been one technological change that has made the big difference. Um, Up until about 10 years ago, it was already relatively easy to read DNA. So you wanted to get a sample. We'd, We'd done a pretty good job of getting to that, and it, and it's continuing now. We, if you want to get, you know, your DNA, um, know your DNA, you can do that very quickly for a hundred dollars, and it'll turn around extremely, extremely quickly. The bit that was difficult was the editing of organisms, and we have a modern technology now called CRISPR, uh, which allows you to do that relatively straightforward, and it can be done for almost all organisms. So even for humans, if you do it when humans are only a, a couple of cells big, you can then go and or edit the DNA of basically any human, any animal, any plant, and then the single cell organisms that I mentioned before. And that's the fundamental change that's happened here from where we were before. Uh, It also opens up a whole bunch of questions. If you can edit the DNA of any living being uh, quickly, relatively easily, um, it still takes some skill, uh, you you are able to basically change the fundamental parts of humanity. And so that's, that's you know, why this technology tends to attract a lot of attention around the ethics component. Um, but there's also a really, really big strategic component to this technology as well. And you mentioned CRISPR just now. And, and again, just a, a brief point of uh, sort of clarification or, or definition. Would you mind just, because um, it's an acronym, right? It's not <laughs> it's not a, a state of crispiness. It's a, an acronym. So would you mind just uh, for our listeners giving us a, a quick um breakdown of that for anyone playing at home? Well, I can. Um, I had to open up because it's it's a – and open up the report here and actually look at it again. It stands for Clustered Regularly Interspaced Short Palindromic Repeats, hence why we shorten that to CRISPR. Um, it's a relatively new method of uh, genome editing. So it's essentially what we call uh, molecular scissors where you can go in uh, in a lab and then, you know, it's not quite as simple as this, but you just go in and cut the DNA where you want, and then you insert what you want in its place. Um, so that's that's the, the simple sort of com- like explanation of that. And it is something that can be done in labs. It can be done at labs at ANU. Um, it can be done at almost any lab that you'd think at a university level around the world now. And of course, researchers are doing it across the world. They're, they're, it's something that can be done probably in tens of thousands of places around the world. There are different types of this technology. Um, but the key takeaway is you are able to go into a gene, uh, into a, a an organism, um, cut the genes, and then insert what you want uh, in its place. Thanks, Dirk. I, I appreciate I put you on the spot a little bit there, but I thought that you know, if we're – we might as well try and explain that little bit as well just while we're in the process here. Um, now, pivoting, I suppose, to more of some of the the substance of the paper or, or some of the, I guess, driving motivations – Uh, So we're looking at biotechnology in the context of the quad, and that suggests to me, and I think you've started to explain that a little bit as well with some of these uh, potentials for both use and misuse, but um, 
It suggests there's a degree of strategic importance in this technology and one that requires some sort of joint action or attention from all the four countries. Is that the case? Yeah, that's that's right. And I think let's take the first part of that question first, or maybe that was the second part of the question, sorry, the strategic importance component. So one of the issues that we have, I think, with a lot of emerging technologies, and it's particularly true for this technology, is you have a couple of technological breakthroughs. So in our case, editing editing organisms' DNA, the ability to grow more quickly, and AI and big data collection. That can be applied to almost anything. Um, you can use modern biotechnology to basically create any output that you might want. So the question then goes, well, what do you actually look at? And this is one of the troubles that the quads had uh, with this particular technology, where to look. So we started this paper by deciding to think, you know, what are the things that really matter here? And we broke down, I guess, the strategic importance into four things. Um, The first is just the economic prosperity. And we've taken uh, a quote from Boston Consulting Group in this paper, but you can find dozens, hundreds of these things online. And and the the general sense is that uh, new biological products are going to become the part part of global supply chains everywhere. Um, The one that we used, as I said in the paper from Boston Consulting Group, said that something like for goods worth about $30 trillion, which will be a third of global GDP uh, by 2030, those will have some biological inputs into the supply chain somewhere or or, or other. So we're looking at at something of the size that's going to be tens of trillions of dollars worth of value. So we just have huge economic importance that comes from this particular comes from this particular technology. Um, the most valuable one of those is, and that one already knows, and is probably the most commonly is the biopharmaceutical market, where traditionally that's been created using, say, think of your aspirin or something like that, where it used to be done with traditional chemicals. Um, we're seeing a lot of the upcoming drugs coming out now are done using biological processes. mRNA vaccines are the most common one that your your listeners will know, but there's lots of them. Um, so that's the first thing. There's just going to be a huge economic pie to be had. And those that lead in this technology stand to make a lot of money from it. And of course, if you have economic power, you then you then get strategic power from that. The second part is the supply chain component, which I sort of got to now. But if you think of any industrial chemical that we have today, uh, any thing that goes into, um, you know, creating things like EE uh, electric vehicles, uh, it's possible that this particular chemical could be created, not the minerals, but the chemicals could be created using uh, modern biotechnology techniques and um so those that control the IP of the genetic engineering materials and those that can actually scale up the biomanufacturing will be in a position to leverage that uh, over other countries. Now, if, if I just give one example here, if we think of biofuels, um, we, we are creating some in Australia in Mackay in, in northern Queensland in partnership actually with a US firm uh, to create jet fuels. And what it is is you're using uh, agricultural waste having organisms eat that and then they produce jet fuel, you're in a situation where it doesn't matter where the hydrocarbon deposits are in the world. What matters is who has access to those genetic engineered organisms, who controls them, and then who controls the biomanufacturing scale up. And so that's a fundamentally different change. And for the entire biomanufacturing space, which we're going to see a rapid change from chemical to biological, uh, you will get a lot of potential strategic leverage from that. So those that 
leading the technology will have the ability to, you know, use that for leverage and those that do not uh, will be subject to the whims of other countries. And this is probably where I think the crux of the suggestions we make in this paper are. Uh, the third part is the security and the safety component. And I think this is well understood by your listeners having who've all lived through COVID or almost all of them have lived through COVID. Um, you know, in a biological system, it's often self-replicating. And if you get it wrong, either accidentally or intentionally, you can kill off agricultural production, you can uh, cause significant damage environmentally, or in a worst case scenario where you have a virus that is accidentally let out or has been intentionally created, you can kill a lot of people very, very quickly. And so there's a, there's a safety component here that you want to look over. And then the final part, uh, which I got to before, but I want to reiterate, is the ethics. Uh, we're now at a situation where you're going to be able to collect the DNA of basically every living uh, individual. How do you store that data? Who gets access to it? And then, of course, if you're looking at actually changing DNA in humans, for example, and saying where some some uh, genes are undesirable, you actually change the DNA of the human race and the same would be for any other living organism as well because a lot of these things are hereditary. Well, all genes, not a lot, all genes are hereditary. I know I answered the first part of the question, which is the strategic one. I'm going to keep keep sort of blabbering on here and I'll go to why does it matter for the quad? Uh, and we took the, took the view that Given the strategic and economic value of this, um, the country that lead the countries that lead in this have much more resilience and you know much more strategic leverage, and so it's just an important technology for us to lead in. Uh, this is not about you know the ethics and safety component, but if you you're in a position where you're vulnerable, um, you will see that being used by by other countries against you, or in a situation where we might be able to leverage that for our strategic gain as well. And so the basic premise of the paper, and I know you're going to ask me in a minute, what are the suggestions, is that we need to make sure that we're leading uh, in this technology. Now that leads, well, why does the quad need to do this and just not individual countries? Um, that's a really good question. I think there's a, there's three answers to that. Uh, firstly, the countries actually have pretty complementary capabilities here. So the US is the leader, as within all, all the critical technologies pretty much. US is a fantastic place to get co stuff commercialised. They have good genetic engineering. Um, where they struggle and everyone else is struggling at the moment is in biomanufacturing. Uh, so it's really relatively straightforward to get the genetic engineered organisms up, but we're unable to get the biomanufacturing capability up where you have some organism and then you want to go and um, produce that at scale, we just don't have enough capacity. And so we're in a capacity battle around the world and China is going absolutely gangbusters building that capacity at the moment. And it's something that a country like the US or Australia or India or Japan hasn't been able to do themselves. And so we're suggesting that you actually go together on this. Um, Australia has advantages because we have a lot of agricultural output. Um, India has traditionally a lot of biomanufacturing from its pharmaceutical capabilities, so it can do things at scale. Um, the US leads the research and the, and the, and the commercialisation, and Japan has a lot of the process engineering capability. And so with those things sort of in mind, you actually have quite a strong um, symbiosis between the countries to actually you know, promote this technology, which is going to be so strategically important. So I think the... The, the way you've explained that there, I think, sets out very clearly where the the strategic importance is and where the interest for the Quad and indeed for lots of other countries are. Um, 
uh, that that this is not. Um, I don't think it's necessarily a competition, but it's certainly it's a all the different sort of major economies of the world. I suspect will be aware of this as an emerging industry to invest in and to build up for those reasons you've you've pointed out. Because no one wants to be, I suppose, um, you know, isolated technologically or, or um, sort of held hostage to sort of global currents. I mean, we've we're talking about so much these days around supply chains and around almost industrial security and economic security as being a fundamental of uh, of Indo-Pacific securities or whether it's around uh, chips or fuels or shipping lanes, you know, these things which haven't necessarily sprung out of nowhere. I mean, they're, they're a, a constant. Maritime security and trade is a constant and, and, and trade protection is too. But this is perhaps a new expression of that um, that we're looking towards but also speaks to a potential – Maybe not inversion, but but pivoting away from traditional uh, forms of fuel or resource security, where it's the thing has to be dug out of the ground somewhere. Whereas, if I understand you correctly, you're saying that this really can be done almost anywhere as long as you have the biomass to generate it. So that actually could mean that uh, there's a lot more almost independence for other countries uh, as this develops over time. So it's a really fascinating um, field to explore, but. At the same time, I think your point about ethics is is also crucial because uh, it would be easy, I suspect, for people to have a slightly dystopian view of this. And when hearing about gene editing and you know DNA scissors and things and uh, large banks of AI fiddling with genomic data, uh, whether that's of plants or animals, let alone people, I mean it, that's a pretty uh, big thing to get our heads around. So the ethical piece is probably just as important in some ways as the technological because one drives what is permissible with the other. Is that a fair characterization? Uh, I think you've hit the nail on the head there in in, in a number of ways. So you, there's two, two things to what you said there. The first is countries are going to be more um, able to do some of the things on their own if you can have the biomass and can have the the access to the IP, which is really important. Yes, you can actually produce a lot of these things on your own. Now, something that we'll get to later is, of course, you still need that to be economically viable to produce it at scale, and that's that's a challenge. Um, but you're absolutely right there. Now, on the ethics side, the view that we took in this paper is one thing. If you want to be a leader in the ethics, you still need to lead in the technology. And so we're, we're at such an early stage in many ways in this technology, and we talk about in the paper, who's in the lead at the moment, in a way it's irrelevant because most of the capacity and most of the stuff that's ever going to be done on this has not yet been done. Um, so that's that's sort of just a, a bit of background there. And if you want to be shaping the ethics, you need to sort of be a leader in the technology. If you want to go to the ISO and set up an ethical committee on, on, on genes, uh, you need your companies to actually have the technology. If you don't have the technology, your, your ability to lead that is more limited. But... You're absolutely right that every country is now thinking about how they govern this. So China's in the process of coming up with synthetic biology is the engineering component, what's called synthetic biology governance. Uh, the EU's in the process of doing the same. And for this particular paper, we've suggested that the Quad actually go together and probably not have a full governance body, but what we're calling sort of a rule collaboration body where we can see where we can get these things aligned. Now, that's not easy. It's really, really difficult. And there's already a, like a million laws around the ethics of genes globally. The problem has generally been 
that, okay, everyone goes and signs up to this thing and then they go back to their own country and they don't do what they say they're going to do because it's really complicated and really difficult. And the social context in each of these in each of these situations is different. What is maybe ethically permissible in India is different to what's ethically permissible in Australia and elsewhere and elsewhere. However, I think having four democracies together in the Quad, even though we have a lot of differences, it's a really good starting point. And so one of the suggestions is that we're going to have a rules collaboration office to try and work out what things can be done well. Now, you didn't mention it, but this this is, you know, part of the Quad Technology Network uh, Phase 3. And there, we had a recent conference and there, there was a lot of papers produced from that which will eventually be uploaded online. And I think there were some good suggestions there about where you could first start. One of those is data. Uh, so one of the concerns at the moment is that China – uh, and one of the big firms, which is BGI, they, they're a, a big. Uh, they do a lot of genetic testing globally. Uh, they tend to then put that that data back into China. It ends up, in some cases, being on on national data banks, and it can't be accessed by foreign researchers. So there's already a bit of a challenge about what data gets shared globally, uh, who can access what, and how how open we should be. When it comes to to liberal democracies, we want to share the results of our data. We want an open scientific collaborat- collaboration globally, uh, but we face a challenge that China, which is actually probably leading the research on this globally now, um, quite possibly, uh, is not sharing its data in return. It makes it makes for a real challenge, and so I think there is a necess- necessity here for rules collaboration office and. The quad's a good size. We're sort of 40% of GDP. We have a lot of capability on this technology, uh, but we're not so big that you become unencumbered and you end up with a whole bunch of rules that everyone signs up to, but no one actually does anything about. And so that's sort of one of the key recommendations from this particular paper. We'll be right back. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In this disrupted world, Australia needs security professionals more than ever. Join the next generation studying at the ANU National Security College. Our programs uniquely fuse academic knowledge with practitioner experience and fit around your lifestyle with study offered online and on campus. Follow the link in the show notes for more information about programs and scholarships. The ANU National Security College. Engaging minds for a secure Australia. Well, I think that's a really important aspect to uh, to hone in on um, is that I suppose the relevance or the suitability of the quad for this sort of initiative because you know I've, I've made comments uh, previously and or in other discussions with people on the podcast here around I think some of my reservations with um, how the quad is perhaps very broad but not necessarily very deep and some of the challenges in making it a real uh, sort of pillar of, of regional sort of institution building and perhaps this is a good expression of where it does have a lot of value and, and potential is that it has, as you say, it, it covers a good, what, 40% of uh, 
of of GDP that way. It, it has the biggest country by population. It has sort of the the, the dominant uh, sort of global economic power in the West. Uh, we each have, as you alluded to earlier, different strengths and compatibilities, I suppose, between the four countries that that together build a good uh, partnership of um, of resources and and science and such. However, there's always sort of the but, I guess, is the question of whether we're actually currently at a point where that is being fulfilled or maximized or or um, that potential is being seen. And I think this is one of the, the points that that you get to in the paper is that there is a lot of unrealized potential uh, and that actually, as it stands, a lot of that cooperation is perhaps more oriented towards China, which then raises these other concerns around uh, ethics or the public availability of data and such. So, and I, I think you've started, you've got touched on this in a few different areas before, but uh, could you just perhaps either reiterate or, or expand a bit more on what the challenge that you see that the quad needs to address is here? What are, what are the what are the shortfalls? Where is it not fulfilling its potential? And um, and in that sense, sort of why is this the right body to to address those issues? Yeah, um, that's I think absolutely the right question because generally, and you will have had other people on this podcast talking about quad technology collaboration, and the issue is there's a heck of a lot of enthusiasm. Uh, the enthusiasm is through the roof, but the practical deliverables so far have been pretty modest, I think. Now, there's some things out of sight that maybe we don't know about, but generally the stuff that's been available publicly has been pretty limited. So um, let me start with where we are on collaboration at the moment as a, as a really good starting point. So there's, if anyone's looking at the paper or wants to look at the paper, and this is very shameless self-promotion, I admit that, if you go to pages 16 through 19, we have looked at how each of the four quad countries are tracking with biotech collaboration in academic papers with other quad members in China. And we've we've marked it out by the percentage of the total international collaborations that, that each of the countries have. And what you'll see is basically for Australia, Japan, and India is a bit of a hub and spokes model where our collaborations with the US are pretty, pretty strong because the US is so strong in this technology. Uh, but over time, it's gradually heading down and becoming a smaller part of what we do. So I've got Australia here and sort of every few years, it's going going down a little bit, sort of it was 37% and it was about down to about 31% over the last decade. And most of that has been taken up by China. So we're seeing stronger linkages with China with all three quad countries that are not the US um, at the expense of the US. And so what, what we see is uh, a gradual decline of the relative importance of US in academic biotech collaboration with Australia is not to say it's declining, it's just to say that growth with China has been much faster. And now China is, you know, a really serious collaborative partner for Australia. And so so the challenge that we we see is we have China, which is a super strong um, biotech research player now. It's also becoming a biomanufacturing uh, partner, but it's one that is not necessarily always going to be easy to work with because every time you have a data issue, it ha- that research has to be done in China and you can't necessarily access it abroad. Um, that, that's that's the, the real sort of challenge that we have. And so our so- solution for this is to come up with a research collaboration office. So a lot of the people uh, that, that talk about 
quad technology collaboration recognised that the people-to-people links could be stronger. We had a fellowship around uh, about a year ago where a whole bunch of technologists from across across the quad went to the US. Uh, That was a nice sort of one-off thing. But what we see in biotech and probably other technologies is a real opportunity to systemize that collaboration. Uh, What we can do is, of course, streamline the visa process. And and this is difficult. It's not easy. And I know lots of people have talked about this, but it still remains if you are a researcher in India and you want to go to a conference in the US, usually the call for papers happens at a time period that is shorter than the researchers can actually get the visa. And so it becomes extremely difficult. There's financial constraints on that as well. And there's, I think, generally not enough attention paid to collaboration between Japan India and Australia. And as you'll see, if you look at the report, that biotech collaboration on that front in academic paper sense is very, 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 very small. And so this is one of the suggestions that we made to try and deal with that. Now, to get to your bigger question, um, I'd also point you to page 12. Sorry for the the, the really high level um, self-aggrandizing self-promotion here. And if you look at the proportion of top biological manufacturing publications um, on page 12, you can see that China leads leads the world actually pretty comfortably. Um, and so we're in a situation now where the research for the future of global supply chains is being done around biological manufacturing. This will be huge, probably the most consequential change to global supply chains in the next 10 years. And China leads on the research side significantly. And so we're of the view that we actually need to do something to fix that. And so we've suggested... Uh, in the paper, a genetic engineering fund to make to make sure that the quad is super competitive on this. Um, there's fun, there's funds at the country level now, but there could be a lot more money going into it and a lot more collaboration. So it would encourage collaboration between quad researchers and probably an even bigger issue than that. And I'm sorry to waffle on in this answer, David. Um, is a biomanufacturing fund. So we we have across the quad now companies that are producing really good research. Um, So in Sydney to take, for example, just to give one example here is there's a company that's producing green hydrogen using organisms. So that's that's a really new way of doing that. Um, The challenge for them and others like that is to then do a demonstration run and they just can't get access to, you know, contract manufacturing space. It's it's so difficult. And that's the same for almost every startup in Australia. It's the same for a lot of startups in the US and in Europe and in, in India. Um, it's a problem in China as well, but they're addressing that more quickly. And so our suggestion is here that we'd actually have a biomanufacturing fund that would allow for the building of demonstration facilities and even larger commercial facilities uh, so that we can come over that pretty quickly. And I think that's in the heart, if you want to lead in this technology and to not be vulnerable, you need to lead on the genetic engineering IP. You need to lead on the biomanufacturing capability and IP. And at the moment, we're not doing that. And the court is a really good sort of set of countries to do that because of the pre-existing natural strengths they have, um, the desire to develop these kind of uh, technologies. And there's a fundamental challenge there that if we don't, China is going to step in and, and sort of take that that the lead in that technology and we will be vulnerable to the IP and biomanufacturing that they have. So I think that all points to really the one of the great strengths, not only of um, of the paper, but I think of this quad tech network project overall is that it's it's not just uh, looking perhaps at sort of the, the blue sky theoretical of 
how do we sort of strengthen deterrence and competition and things? It's a bit, it's a bit more abstract. This is very, we're, we're looking at delivering real specific, clear policy recommendations, but also ones that are done not just by governments, but are actually done by, by industry, by, um, you know, within the market by either a freeing up of capital and, and infrastructure to enable companies to actually develop and to build jobs and build networks. And uh, it's more comprehensive than just, say, defense or defat. It, it's a different aspect of it. And I think that's one thing that I've really enjoyed as being part of this project is seeing lots of people come together. And as you said, Dirk, we're, we're hoping to have a lot of those papers released online in, in, uh, in due course as well. But lots of people coming together with really concrete policy recommendations of how to address these challenges and to, to put some uh, some meat on the bones of that collaboration and to not just look um, at some of the the shortcomings or, or what have been shortcomings to this point, um, but we say it can be more, the quad can be more than this, and we want to find ways to do that that are um, delivering public goods, I guess, for the region as well, not just um, – not just seeing as not being seen as something that is from outside the region coming in, but something that can deliver on the ground for all of our economies, but also from within the region as well. And I, I think this is a a really interesting way of doing that. Now, just to to build on that reflection, a lot of those points that you've raised as as key recommendations, yes, government money is involved in funding them and setting up these funds and such and and perhaps um, some of that collaboration work and bring them together. But they strike me as more of a private sector-led, uh, industry-led approach to building an industry and, and moving away – well, not moving away, but moving from research strengths into commercialization strengths and manufacturing strengths and such. Apart from that, are there things which are more specifically – government-focused um, that our four countries need to be looking at? Are there are there changes that need to be made within our bureaucracies or administrations to better profile or support or uh, enact these changes you're talking about? Yeah, I mean, that's, I think, a really uh, succinct summary, actually, of what I've been saying, David. And where I sort of start from this, because we, as you say, there's a defense component and a resilience component. And when it comes to biotechnology, because it's so new, the resilience and the innovation, they're very, very overlapped. If you have enough biomanufacturing capability, and then you end up in a conflict scenario, you can probably change some of that over to say, you're producing one type of thing, maybe you want to produce fuel in a period of a conflict time, it's good to have that capability online. So I actually think that the the question where you get to very defense focused things and very industry-focused things, sometimes those things, at least for biotech, are actually pretty interwoven. And if can you create biomanufacturing capability that's going to be you know, economically viable but potentially uh, repurposable when, when, if, if that scenario ever arrives? Now, on the government side here, uh, you're right that a lot of the things we're thinking about are how we can make it better for companies. Um, that's absolutely true. But I would think these funds that we mentioned here are absolutely a case of government-led um, innovation, particularly when it comes to this uh, biomanufacturing fund. This has been a real problem when 
you know, you com- companies want to get access to this, and the problem is small startups just don't have that kind of funding to buy buy that ac- to buy access to contract manufacturing, and then if they do, they can't get access anyway. So, I think that the government role here is pretty significant, and the government role in tying the universities to these new funds and then to industry, we have a, a real responsibility to set up innovation hubs. Um, there are good models coming up in the US now that I think could be replicated across the quad. So that's one component. Uh, There's two other things that I think are very specific to government. So one of the issues at the moment is if you're a researcher like me, or if you're in the US, or if you're in India, or you're somewhere else, uh, biotech is so broad that it's very, very difficult to know who the point person is. Let's say you're you're in the Australian working group, or you're like me, and you want to go to the US, and then you have 17 different departments to deal with, you have a, a huge number of experts that are splintered across the entire bureaucracy and understandably because some of them will be in ag, some will be in health, some will be in, in manufacturing, some will be in industry, some will be in energy, etc. cetera. Um, what we've suggested is a, a, a point person, a biotech point person in each of the quad countries for greater collaboration. So this is, I think, a starting point where we can do so. At the moment, it's 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 just so difficult for people in the US to to have a direct contact person in Australia. And so that would be a an official government position that we would, I think, have. Um, and they would probably also help some of the rules collaboration office to try and work out where these um, collaborative opportunities are. And I think that's that's really where we're sort of sending in terms of the recommendations here. More broadly, um, I think we're probably getting to a point where in the quad we're going to need to prioritise certain technologies over others. Um, at the moment we have, you know, working groups on a wide range of things and that's understandable, um, but I think some tough decisions are going to need to be made inside government in in the near future about which of those technologies we maybe make initial areas of priority and that's something we haven't been able to do yet and that will have to be, I think, really government-led and that's not going to be a, a pleasant process at all. It's just at the moment we sort of talk about doing a wide range of things and to get to your point earlier, maybe it's time to start doing a few things particularly uh, well and narrow. And that's that's going to be, I think, decisions that need to be made at, at a governmental level and probably a political level uh, in the relatively near future. Right. Well, I think this is just our last question now, but that's been a really, um, I think, informative and fascinating overview of what is a uh, – a topic that I think many of the listeners won't have had any knowledge of going in, but I think they'll clearly be understand, able to understand now uh, its its both strategic significance as well as economic uh, and and ethical and regulatory. So there's so many different aspects to this, uh, and I would commend everyone to read the paper, uh, which um, if it hasn't been put up on it's, the... It's up there it's already. Up, okay, yeah. good, good. It's uh, go to... Uh, the NSC website um, under our research tab and you'll find it there. Um, but just as a final uh, quick question here, um, are there any, you think, we, you know, a lot of these points we've been discussing are manageable, but they're also large. Uh, they, they will take time to implement, uh, were they to be implemented? Are there any quick wins that either the Australian government could make or quad governments could make in the short term? Oh, thanks. Thanks, David. Again, I'm going to go back to the paper um, again. And, and as you'll see in the play, uh, in the paper, we have a couple of quick wins that we, we think 
might be really necessary. So uh, just on the things that we've mentioned, I think, yeah, rules collaboration office, for example, that's going to take quite a lot of time to bear fruit. Uh, but there are other things that we can do now. And there's a couple of things that are already happening. So joint joint disease surveillance, US and India are already doing that. And Australia already has a Pacific um, d- disease surveillance unit as well. So we're kind of already doing this, uh, but it would be nice to do it at the quad level and then sort of maybe look at that as a as a four-party organization that would do disease surveillance across the region, probably starting in India just because there are so many um, – the population is so large and there's a lot of diseases that are unique and endemic just to that region uh, there, and there is a real lack of capability within India at this point to do that. So I think that's just – something we're already doing and just with a little bit of bureaucratic finessing and a little bit more money, not much, we could probably do that. Um, And I think that would be welcomed in India, but then later down the track in other countries in the region. And then we've got one other as well in the paper, which is uh, RNA-based biopesticides. It doesn't just have to be, um, I think, the the sort of uh, pesticide space on the biological side, which is different to the harsh chemicals that you usually get, uh, Australia actually has a fair bit of technology here, and so does the US. And so, there's probably we've we've suggested one company here that's already doing this stuff, but there are other others out there, and I'd think that that would be a relatively non-controversial place to do some early level um, R and D and commercialization if we're going to pick one particular. Um, technology where we could actually see some wins in a, in a very short period of time, just one or two years. All right. Well, Dirk, thanks again so much for being here with us on the podcast. And uh, for those listening at home, um, there'll actually hopefully be a, a subsequent follow-up conversation with some other participants from the QTN dialogue that Dirk mentioned earlier. Uh, and we'll get into some of the the other research products that have coming out of this uh, sort of 12 months worth of research that we've had from across our four countries. So I um, hope you'll come back for that one. But Dirk van der Klee, thanks so much for joining us on the National Security Podcast. Thanks for having me. It was an absolute pleasure. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.